the Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. It's Carrie here, and I'm so excited to welcome you to episode 519. We've got Nona Jones back on the podcast today, and we are going to talk about, well, a subject that comes up a lot, insecurity. It's something I've had to battle as a leader. Maybe you know somebody, or perhaps you are struggling with it as a leader. Talk about comparison and, uh, well, overcoming childhood trauma and a whole lot more. Today's episode is brought to you by Pro Media Fire. You can get help today with your social media or custom website by going to promediafire.com slash carry. And by Compassion International, you can equip local churches around the world while seeing your church grow in the process by going to compassion.com slash carry. And you spell carry C-A-R-E-Y in both cases. Hey, I am so glad you joined us today. I know how valuable your time is. And here's what I try to do. I try to bring you the best conversations that I am capable of having, maybe the kinds of conversations you wish you could have with some of the world's top leaders. And uh, we bring that to bear on leadership and in particular, church leadership. So whether you're a church leader or a business leader who's involved in your church, or frankly, leadership is leadership. I know this translates more widely, but hey, we want to bring the best we can to bear on what you are doing as a leader in your organization. And uh, Meta's Nona Jones is going to help us. So she has worked at Facebook, now Meta, for a number of years. And she's a rare combination of preacher, business executive, author, and entrepreneur. She's the best-selling author of several books. And her latest one, Killing Comparison, was just released. And in her book, she talks about her unlikely story of success after a childhood filled with physical and sexual abuse. And uh, she also has a book, and if you haven't read it yet, it's a great one, From Social Media to Social Ministry. It's a globally acclaimed guide to digital discipleship for churches. And then her latest book, Killing Comparison, that's what we are talking about today. And that is an issue for a lot of leaders. If you enjoy this episode, please leave a rating and review. When you do that, it makes a big difference and gets this noticed. More and more leaders listen to this podcast every single month, and that's because of you, and I'm so grateful for it. So got a question for you. Would you like to grow online 24-7 without being buried in social media every day? Well, you can do it with the Pro Media Fire team. The process is pretty simple. You book a free consultation, you hire the team to do the work, and you grow online through a five-step digital engagement framework. And that's how you grow online in three easy steps. In addition to strategy, social media management, and digital marketing, their team also builds custom websites and they maintain them for you. So with ProMediaFire, you can have an entire creative team, social media team, and website maintenance team for less than the cost of a single staff member. So let the pros handle your online growth while you focus on the mission. You can book your free consultation today at ProMediaFire.com slash carry. That's ProMediaFire.com slash C-A-R-E-Y. I also want to tell you about a ministry that I have loved for years, and that's Compassion International. Done a lot of work with them. They're an incredible organization and their goal is to release children from poverty in Jesus' name. They currently serve over 2 million children and their families in some of the most poverty-stricken areas of the world. And here's my favorite part. It's all happening through the local church. So Compassion is all about equipping the local church so every single child is cared for by leaders in their community. Now, as a pastor myself for many years, I found Compassion to be a strategic partner of our global mission strategy at our church. And so we incorporated Compassion into our focus on the nation of Guatemala. I've been there many times 
with compassion. Compassion made it easy for everyone in our church to put their faith in action by caring for a child in need. My wife and I also do that. We sponsor a couple of kids. I would encourage any pastor listening to learn more about compassion. They will do what your congregation is unable to do on its own. So if you're interested and passionate about a local church around the world and you want to help your congregation make a difference, go to compassion.com slash carry to learn how. That's compassion.com slash C-A-R-E-Y to learn how. And now, a conversation that I really hope is going to help you thrive in life and leadership, my conversation with Nona Jones. Nona, welcome back. Thanks, Carrie. I always love spending time with you. Yeah, we get to hang out in a bunch of different contexts, but uh, this podcast being one of them, uh, it's a lot of fun. So I want to start here. You have expertise in online marketing. You've had a highly successful career at Meta, formerly Facebook. You have written books on social media and social ministry. You lead a large movement about racial justice and racial reconciliation. So how does someone with your credentials (laughs) at your level of career actually struggle with comparison? Like, do you not just graduate at a certain point? Like, (laughs) but that's a real issue for you, right? Oh man. Um, it really is. And I think there's the fallacy that, you know, we often walk into the successful chapter that a person's life is on and we just assume that's their whole story. And so I think a lot of times, you know, people see, they see the so-called glitz and the glam and the, you know, the resume. And it's like, you must be the most secure person on earth because of, what you've achieved and done. Um, And yet I had to really wrestle with um, the fact that I was an insecure person. And I think the, the moment that that became really clear to me is at the startup of the pandemic. I mean, I think all speakers, yourself included, I'm sure, you know, we had a great year lined up that year, right? Like, Oh yeah. You should have seen my plans. Oh, it was going to be, listen, the the word I used to describe that year is it was going to be lit. Like I was releasing two Mm. books. I was speaking on multiple continents. It was going to be amazing. But then, you know, my whole calendar got canceled like most people's. And I happened to be on Instagram one morning and I caught a glimpse of my newsfeed because normally I just go straight to my comments and respond. But I caught a glimpse of my newsfeed and there was a friend of mine, another preacher, another speaker, And she had a post about this amazing women's conference she was going to be speaking at. And um, the conference usually meets in person, but it was going virtual because of the pandemic. And I saw it and I was like, oh, that's really cool. Well, I scrolled a little bit more and I saw another post um, from another friend who was speaking at this conference. And I was like, oh, okay, you know, that's great. And, And I scrolled a little more and I saw another friend and then it was another friend and another friend. And it got to a point where, I mean, I was like, look, I know all of the speakers. I know the host. And I felt something on the inside of me and it was just not good. And I began to ask questions like, why wasn't I invited? You know, why was I overlooked? Um, You know, why, why was I not good enough? And it was in that moment, Carrie, that I heard the Holy Spirit ask me a different, more important question. He said, Nona, why does it matter? And I had never, ever considered that question when I was, you know, drowning in those, you know, feelings of inadequacy and all of that. And it was that question that made me have to face myself. And the Lord really spoke to me and was like, Nona, you're insecure. 
And that, I'm telling you, was like a slap in the face. Because if you would have told me at that point that I was insecure, I would have been like, no, I know what the word of God says about who I am. You know, look at all that I've done and all that I'm doing. I'm not insecure. But it was that that moment that made me have to realize, you know what? There's something on the inside of me that's causing me to see somebody else's success as my failure. And I need to explore this. So, yeah, I uh, I had to start there. So was it that much of a shock? Like, you know, because I've, I've insecurity has been part of my journey over the years and I'm, I'm getting better at it. I think in my 30s was much more of a live wire than it is right now, but it rears its beautifully ugly head <laughs> from time to time. So you would have said up until that point, a couple of years ago, it's like, no, I'm terribly secure. Like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm good. That's, yeah. that's what it seemed like to you. Yeah. Like I, <laughs> uh-huh. I was one of those people that, you know, I would see other people succeed and I would be like, good for you. Go forth. May God enlarge your territory. What uh-huh. I realize now though, in retrospect is the reason why I was able to respond that way is because I had a commensurate level of success. Like I, in many ways, I could see their success and not be threatened by it because we were like on the same footing. So it wasn't like, oh, they're, they're getting ahead of me. They're doing more than me. There's something else that they've achieved that I haven't. Um, as a matter of fact, Carrie, I mean, you know, I talk about this a lot in uh, my new book. I, I've been in an executive role since I was 23. And so I've mm-hmm. always been ahead of the curve. Like, you know, I've, I've been- You're on- up into the right- Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So it was never an issue of somebody's doing more than me. It was really me always kind of doing more than other people. And so that really made me realize, whoa. And one of the revelations I had is part of what was fueling my ambition was insecurity. I didn't realize Mm -hmm. it until that moment. Like I thought that what was fueling my ambition was just a desire to succeed. But no, Carrie, what was fueling my ambition was insecurity. And that's why I achieved so much so soon. Um, it was it was a moment of introspection for sure. How, how did you discover that? How did you figure out that, oh, that's insecurity? Why was that not just a bad day where you're like, all right, I yeah. got it. Let's yeah. move on. Like this obviously was a soul search. Oh, yeah, you. it was. But part of it, a huge part of it was some insight that truly the Holy Spirit downloaded to me. So to give you more context on that moment when the Holy Spirit was like, why does it matter? Um, when, when I heard the Lord say, you know, you're insecure, my response was, I'm not insecure. Like I said, look at all I've done. I know what your word says. But then the Lord said something really profound. The Lord said, Nona, you're like so many people. You think that insecurity is about ego. You think it's about self-esteem. But insecurity has nothing to do with your ego or your self-esteem. Insecurity is a function of what your identity is secured to. And I was like, what does that even mean? And when, when I thought about that, what really took me back to my early career and my early ministry is I realized that the reason I was insecure is because I had secured my identity to my job title. I had secured my identity to being you know, the youngest preacher in this context. I had secured my identity to other people's approval of me. And that's what made me insecure. And I didn't realize it because I had the affirmation. 
Like I had, I had the people celebrating me. So it was never a moment where it, I didn't have that until it got pulled away. That's when the insecurity was highlighted because now the thing that I had secured my identity to the approval of other people was withheld. And so that's what pulled back the covers a bit and made me realize, oh, there's something here that I didn't even realize was here. So, yeah, I'm trying to think about what the next question is I want to ask. So when you look under the rock of that moment and you turn it over and start to see some slimy things and whatever, there was insecurity there. Was there a sense of entitlement or self-righteousness? Like if you had to start to really unpack the complexity of what was there. Was it a sense of what you didn't notice me, you know, cause it's one thing, right. To be like, Oh, you don't know who I am, but it's like, right. well, you know exactly who I am. And you didn't invite me. Like what, what is underneath that? Oh man. So that was one of the big ahas that I had um, was exactly that is that, you know, and, and, and the Bible speaks of this about, you know, thinking more highly of yourself <laughs> than you ought to think. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah, in that's that such moment. a convicting text. Oh man. Yeah. It was in that moment that I realized um, as much as I knew about God and, you know, being someone who preaches about, you know, the love of God, I really was walking in pride. Um, I had an elevated view of myself, which is why, to your point, not being invited bothered me because it was it, almost like an expectation. Like, of course I would be invited. Like, I'm these are my peers. I know all the speakers. I know the host. Of course I would be invited. And the funny thing, Carrie, is so this happens really subtly because I remember as my you know ministry and my career was was growing, there was a point where I was very much so like, look, all glory to God. God is amazing. Like I was in awe of what God was doing in my life. There was a humility there. And then there became a point at which it shifted. So I was no longer in awe of what God was doing. It became an expectation that God would do it. And I, I think we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but I do believe this is why many pastors um, struggle with you know, what happened during the pandemic. Because we have this expectation that people are going to come see us speak. And so when that expectation is no longer fulfilled, we're starting to not only question the efficacy of our ministry, we're questioning whether or not we were called at all because we have secured our identity to attendance. And so this stuff happens really subtly. You know, in the beginning of ministry, you're so grateful that God even brought a dozen people. Oh my gosh, there's a dozen people. That's amazing. But then there comes a point where you can have a thousand, two, five, ten thousand, and it's not enough. Um, and that's when you know you're you're on toxic ground. Hmm. So if you rewind the tape, um, first of all, did you process this with a counselor as well, or has this been more of a spiritual journey for you? Oh, it was a hundred percent spiritual. Um, I will say though. I do a lot of reading um, around just, you know, mental, emotional well-being. And so I integrate, you know, spiritual revelation with, with the scientific disciplines and the medical disciplines as well. Got it. Got it. Okay. So if you go back to your childhood, can you see the seeds of this oh, in your man. childhood? Yeah. So this is actually one of the big insights that I, I share in the book is that I realized Part of what fractured my identity and even caused me to secure my identity to an insecure foundation, like people's approval, um, was the words that were spoken over me as a child. 
um, words like, you know, I was, I was overweight for the vast majority of, of my life, really. Um, but words like, you know, you're fat, you're ugly, um, you're never going to be anything. Uh, words like you're not smart. Nobody wants to hear you speak. Those words really created cracks. Like verbalized words or oh, you were yeah. reading between the lines? No, no, no. Like quite literally verbatim. <laughs> words that were said by my classmates, by my teachers, by my mother. Like these words were spoken over me. And and it, it lends itself to, I think, uh, you know, in the book of Proverbs, we all have heard this verse about, you know, uh, life and death is in the power of the tongue. Well, that word power is actually the Hebrew word yad, which means hand. And so when when we put it all together, what the word is telling us is that uh, life and death exists in the hand of the tongue. Well, what does a hand do? A hand shapes, it molds, it creates, and it also destroys. A hand can build a house and a hand can tear it down, right? A, a hand can can soothe a wound and it can also pull a trigger. And so what the, what the Bible is really telling us is that the hand of our tongue has power. And so those words, they shaped me. They broke my identity. And so I really secured my identity to those things that were fickle and shifting because I didn't have a sense of who I was outside of those words. And that was a big insight that I had. So how old were you when you started, when you remember hearing those voices? Oh, I remember it as early as first grade. Like as early as first grade, I remember um, being called fatty pants, you know, Miss Piggy. Um, I I remember those words. I even remember the expression on my classmates' faces when they said it because it it really destroyed my sense of self. It did. Wow. And what were the internal messages that you oh, absorbed in that? That that sense of you know what you're you're not wanted. You're, you're just, you're not wanted. And um, that rejection, it created, it kind of created almost like a, a vacuum on the inside of me to where I needed attention. I needed affirmation, which is also why looking back on it, I can see why I acted out in school. Um, there were some other things happening in the home that were not good. And I acted out in school because I had a void of attention and worthiness. And so since I couldn't get the affirmation I wanted, which was, hey, you're a good kid, you're smart, you're capable. I just decided to be the class clown just so I could be seen. And I hmm. see that in a lot of young people where they act out because they just want to matter <laughs> to somebody. And they'll take even mattering as you know a, a so-called problem child just to be seen at all. Um, Enneagram type. What, so, what type are you? I just found out. So I've, I've been told that I'm, I'm like right at eight, three, or one. Like they're all basically. Okay. I was going to say, those would be my guesses. <laughs> yeah. Eight or three, because there's a bit of a performer under there. And listen, for the record, Ian Cron has spent too much of his precious time trying to figure out whether it was an eight or a three, but we keep landing on eight. Uh, but the performer, right, yep. versus the challenger. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there is that sense that your life is out of control, that you got to perform yep. for everything to be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm totally not a psychologist. I have not more than two minutes of training in this. <laughs> but my theory in 
watching people is that when there is that kind of pain in childhood and that kind of rejection in childhood, there's two directions. Either people implode. In other words, here come the addictions. Here come, I'm going to turn in on myself and destroy my life. And that's Mm -hmm. where you get into drugs and alcohol and, you know, just shifting. Or this is my term, they explode. I am going to, and by that, I mean, they propel into the future. It's Mm -hmm. like, I'm going to take the bull by the horns. I'm going to be successful. Mm -hmm. I'm going to get noticed. People are going to hear my voice. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be smart because you guys are saying I'm dumb. And I'm going to go to the best school. I'm going to get a great job. I'll be rich one day. What was that like for you? Or perhaps there's a third path. But what what happened in your life? Carrie, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, I, I actually use the exact same language to describe how people respond to trauma. Um, childhood trauma either causes implosion or explosion. And as a matter of fact, um, so there's, there's a tool, there's a, it's a tool in social services called the adverse childhood experiences assessment. And what it essentially, yeah, the ACEs. Yeah. So it looks at, you know, what's the probability that a child who experienced certain forms of trauma, um, will have adverse outcomes in life. So incarceration, uh, premature Mm -hmm. death, drug addiction, et cetera. Um, and it's on a scale of like zero to 10, where if you even have a three, you're considered at, at pretty high risk for an adverse outcome. Mm-hmm. Carrie, I scored an eight. I scored an eight. So <laughs> the, the fact that I'm even sitting here having this conversation with you is nothing but a miracle. It's proof of God's existence. Um, but I, I bring that up because this idea of explosion, that's exactly what I did. Like I very easily could have imploded, could have been drug drug addicted, could have uh, been incarcerated. There's so many things that could have happened. Mm -hmm. But instead, I turned that trauma into the fuel for my ambition, which goes back to what I mentioned earlier. Um, Well, you've been on top since 23. I mean- Age 23, yeah. And before that, like I graduated Mm -hmm. from high school at the top of my class, you know, full academic scholarship to the University of Florida. I was- president of multiple student organizations while at the same time a microbiology and cell science major heading to pre-med. I was doing all this, graduated, you know, went to corporate America on all these boards. And I think knowing now what I know, the the insecurity that I could not name then is really what was was driving me is this idea that I only matter as much as people's approval of me. And that's where we start to get into comparison. Because people only approve of you relative to other people. <laughs> so that became another another issue as well. Yeah, it seems like, you know, in your writing and, and, and definitely in a lot of our experiences, there's three words that kept coming up in, in, in your book. One was um, comparison, mm-hmm. but right underneath that or beside it, were rejection or fear of rejection and insecurity, which we've already talked about. How are those three linked? Well, so uh, if, if you would have asked me before writing this book, like what causes people to compare themselves to other people, mm-hmm. I would have said insecurity. I would have thought that insecurity was the root. But after really exploring and excavating my own personal journey and talking with others, what I realized is that insecurity is the fruit of comparison and comparison is often the fruit of rejection. So what rejection does is it causes us to look outward because when we're rejected, 
it's like, why, like, why me? Like, why are they not choosing me? And when we look outward, then we start to see, well, who are they choosing in my stead? That's where comparison is born. So if you're not choosing me, then who are you choosing? So I'm comparing myself to this other person. And when mm-hmm. you start comparing yourself to another person, you begin to secure your identity and your sense of worth to whatever the thing is that you think made that person choose them. And so I'll give you an example. Let's say um, let's say you go out for a position on your job and you apply for it. You want to be a manager. Well, let's say you don't get se- uh, selected for it. All right. So you're rejected. Okay. Well, who was selected? Okay. Let's say it's Sally. Sally gets selected. You start to compare yourself to her. What is it that she has that I don't have? And once you figure out what that matrix is, now you have essentially created her as your benchmark for worthiness. If I can be more like Sally, then maybe I'll matter. If I can be more like Sally, then maybe I'll get the position. But the problem is you've now secured your identity to being more like someone who you will never be like, (laughs) which creates insecurity. And so it's all related, but it really does start with rejection. I'm really glad you tackled this in the book uh, head on, Nona. And I want to be a little bit gentle with the question because as a guy, I'm sure I'm going to get it wrong. But you do talk about a Brazilian butt lift. Yes. That you did. (laughs) All right. I'm going to keep the question really short so I don't step in it. Uh, But if you can take that as a cue, why don't you tell us? Because I mean, body image is such a big issue. And it's an image for uh, issue for women. I think it's an image for guys. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about that? season in your life. Yeah. So um, I mentioned earlier how, you know, throughout my childhood, I was, I was overweight. I was called a lot of names. Um, Now layer on top of that, the fact that I'm a black woman. And so, you know, there is a, a slightly varied standard of beauty for a black woman as there is for a white woman. And that's just, you know, kind of how it is. Um, as a black woman, beauty is typically viewed through the lens of, you know, having uh, certain voluptuous parts of your body, right? Well, my dilemma is I was basically given my dad's chest and my mom's butt, and they're both flat, okay? okay? All right. So, All right. so for me, this idea of having curves, it just it just wasn't in the cards. And so not only was I overweight, um, but I didn't have any curves. The only curves I had, honestly, Carrie, was my stomach. My stomach was round. I would often say, man, if I could just like push my stomach backwards, like I would be in such good shape. But um, yeah, so I I had this fractured identity um, because I would compare myself to the standard of beauty for Black women and I was lacking. So fast forward, you know, um, early 30s, I I'm in a position now to where I can make some, you know, different choices in my life. Um, I get really serious about fitness. So I was working out really hard, lost a hundred pounds. Um, I was doing all types of exercises to try to grow my glute muscles, you know, the squats and the donkey kicks and the, you know, Bulgarian split squats and all that. I mean, my legs got really toned. My butt didn't grow one centimeter, like for years, nothing happened. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to take matters into my own hands. Like I am going to get this procedure that is supposed to give a woman a butt. So I research, I find a surgeon. I prayed about it, Carrie. This, see, I am a spirit-led person, so I, I really mm. try not to make decisions before praying. But I prayed about this thing, Carrie. I was like, Lord, 
you know, I'm going to do this. I, I think it's the right decision for me. Will you please keep me safe during surgery? I heard the Lord say, Nona, if I wanted you to have a butt, I would have given you one. I didn't give you a butt to keep you humble. Now, I'm saying to myself, hmm, it's an interesting response, Lord, but I'm still going to get the surgery. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I get on the plane. Oh. I get on the plane. I'm flying to L.A. I hear the Lord say it again. If I wanted you to have a butt, I would have given you one. I didn't give you one to keep you humble. My response was, Lord, I'm going to be humble with the butt. So we landed in L.A. I had the procedure. No lie. Within six months. Not, not, just, not just any procedure. Oh, which, no. Which doctor? Well, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> so I found out who the uh, Kardashians doctor uh, is. They actually have, they have, they have several, but there was one in particular that I found that specializes in this Brazilian butt lift procedure. So uh, had the procedure, loved the results. I'm like, yes, finally I've arrived. Within six months, Carrie, six months, my butt dissolved within six months. And, and the reason is it's just transferred fat. And so when I started working out again, the, the fat burned. It just it dissolved. And so <laughs> I, I realized, but it was such a, a, an instructive experience because I realized once it all happened, all I could do was laugh. First of all, God said, don't do it. First of all, God said, don't do it. I can save my money. But second of all, I realized that what was prompting me to do that again was comparison born insecurity and this feeling of rejection because I didn't have the so-called ideal body type for a black woman. And so, yeah, that was a funny experience, but it taught me a lot about myself. So, and I, I want to be very sensitive in the <clears throat> shaping of this question, but body image is a big issue for women yeah. and there's, you know, body shaming and acceptance of your body, but you've been very public about your weight loss journey mm -hmm. too. I mean, if you follow you on social as I do, mm -hmm. you'll post, this was me 10 years ago, this is me today. Mm -hmm. How do you navigate healthy self-acceptance with a healthier lifestyle? Oh. I, guess, I don't know whether that's the right way to say it, but do, yeah. do you know what I'm driving at? Like, because there's a certain sense in which you're loved the way you are. Mm -hmm. Like you weren't, you weren't less loved when you were a hundred pounds or whatever that yeah. was heavier. And yet there's also health. And as somebody who's mm -hmm. always struggled with those extra 20 pounds my entire life, <laughs> Um, I understand the health implications. There is, you know, I'm sort of past the beach body phase of my life. <laughs> I kind of missed that one. But, uh, but you know, I, I understand that I think God's responsible for the quantity of our life, you know, how many years we have, but I'm responsible to some extent as steward of the quality of my life. So I do all those squats and push-ups yes. and cycling and all that mm -hmm. stuff because I want to have some stewardship of of my life. So how, how do you balance that? Because there's self-acceptance and then, and, you know, and, and fitness can be kind of come an obsession too. It can be yet another striving like, Oh, you see me now? Look at how yes. great I am. Now you have to accept me. So how do you yes. navigate that? Oh man, it's all about motive. Like I, I think mm. motive really, really matters. Um, as we're trying to, you know, get free from toxic comparison, we have to begin to investigate what is the motive for what we're doing. Uh, when it comes to health and fitness, I'm at a place now where my motive is, oh, I love the way you said it. My, my motive is I want to steward my life such that the quality of my life honors God. I can't, con I can't control the quantity, but the quality, I want it to honor God. And so my motive is I want to be fit and healthy 
so that I can, you know, have a, a great life with my kids and, um, you know, actually enjoy physical activities and not feel drained and exhausted at the end of the day. That's my motive. Um, at one point, though, my motive really was about trying to be accepted by people. My motive was, you know, wanting compliments. And um, I'm very careful. So even if, you know, someone, if you follow me on social, I don't post constantly about, you know, hey, y'all, look at me now. And I'm very careful about that because I want to guard the motive of my heart too. So I'll post as encouragement, like, hey, if I can do it, you can do it. Let me show you where I've come from. Usually it happens because somebody will make a comment like, oh, you know, you skinny girls don't know what it's like. And I'm like, what's skinny? Let <laughs> me show you me. Um, but I think motive is really important. And this is where we have to be just super self-aware. Like, what is it that's motivating this? I've, uh, I've even taken down posts or stories and things if I realize that the motive for posting it was somehow about, you know, making myself great or uh, trying to be accepted by people. I will take it down because I don't want to feed that part, which I know it will grow if I feed it. So yeah, that's that's what I would strongly recommend is just always think about what's the motive for this? What am I trying to accomplish with this? Um, and is this going to take me in a healthy direction or is this going to simply keep me in bondage uh, to my insecurity? What is your approach to sifting your motives? Because I find... I'm very good at lying to myself. Yeah, I'm yeah. very good at trying to convince myself that, oh, that was so altruistic. And then it's like, no, it wasn't. You're just a selfish whatever. Yeah. How, how do you sift your motives? So one of the ways that I do it is, so for example, when it comes to like what I post on social, I'm always trying to help people um, either develop or grow. I'm trying to encourage them in their faith. I'm trying to point them to God. I'm trying to like, you know, keep the attention off of me and, and really put it on them and on God. If I start to see a bunch of comments, for example, that are all about me and how great I am and, oh my gosh, Noni, you're amazing and Noni, you're this, that, and the other, I will say, mm, that's not really what I was going for. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I'll pull it down. Now, there are times where I'll post something and I'll just like make fun of myself. So I'll post like a funny reel and it's like intended to make fun of myself. Um, but you know, I look at the comments and if, if people start to uh, like ascribe value to me when my intention was to ascribe value to God or to encourage them or to make them think, then I'll know, okay, something was off there. And, and I try to ask myself before I do just about anything, okay, if no one applauds this, if no one celebrates this, if no one is grateful for this, will I be okay? Because if I'm expecting a response to what I'm doing, then my motive is probably off. Hmm. Okay, so here's a theory for you. Back to the insecurity question. Mm -hmm. I've wondered about this for years, but I'm just going to say it as a statement. You respond, agree, disagree, (laughs) nuance, whatever. But here's a statement. Pastors are more insecure than business leaders. Mm -hmm. True? False? Agree? Disagree? I love this question, Carrie, because I've (laughs) thought so deeply about it and kind of like, you know, what I said earlier, I think the pandemic really, in my mind, exposed a tremendous amount of insecurity in pastors. Um, So much so that I remember, (laughs) I remember um, we were maybe, I don't know, six, seven months into it. And, you know, that's like a two year thing, but we're six or seven months into it. And pastors were like, can't wait to get back to church. And it was one of these things where I was like, you can't wait to get, like, are you not 
like gathering? Like what's happening? Are you not using technology? And what I realized was it was all about um, having the attention of the people, like having people look at them and them being able to look at the people. And so I would say that I think that's very unique to a pastor as opposed to a business leader, because while it is true that, you know, a CEO or vice president may have the attention of their team, they're not necessarily in a perpetual state of trying to grow their team, right? Whereas in a church setting, it's like a perpetual state of trying to grow your attendance. So if I have an all hands meeting and 50 people show up, that's great because I have 50 people on the team. But if I'm at a church and 50 people show up, I may feel like that's a failure. Why? Because the church down the street has a thousand people show up. So what's wrong with me? Um, so I, I definitely would agree with that. And I think it's something that we're going to have to, we're going to have to deal with very seriously. That's why a lot of pastors, unfortunately, have resigned, I think. Well, you work in the business world, like literally at Meta, where there's probably a handful of Christians in the mix. And then yeah. you're in churches all the time. You and your husband lead a church in Florida, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, when you look at the average makeup or psychology of someone in Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. and then you look at the average church leader, what are some of the differences you see in terms of their psyche, self-talk, fragility, et cetera, et cetera? So I'll, I'll put it into two buckets and okay. it's two personas. So on the one hand, I think you have people who are insecure in their leadership. And on the other hand, you have people who are secure in their leadership. I would say that across those two personas, there's no difference to whether it's, you know, um, tech or, you know, church. And, and what I mean by that is what I've seen is if you have a pastor, for example, who has a very fragile identity to where it's all about the attendance. Um, they may constantly want to check the stats and the numbers and, you know, what's attendance like and what's the giving like and what's all this like because they're, they're just, they've, they've secured their identity to those numbers. Similarly, I've noticed I have colleagues who have secured their identity to their stats and statistics as well. So if, if uh, you know, if our monthly active users goes up, they feel great. If it goes down, mm. they feel horrible. Um, similar with a pastor, if, you know, attendance is up, they feel great. If it goes down, it's horrible. That to me is just insecurity in, in, in your identity, regardless of mm. location. Whereas a secure leader is one who's kind of like, you know, seasons change, trends change. But if I know that I'm doing the right thing, I'm not allowing my identity to, you know, shift with the currents of, of the metrics, because at the end of the day, I believe this is the right strategy. And so I think that's the distinction is more so whether they're insecure or secure as a person. No, that's really helpful. So I'm also thinking about general, uh, generations. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm reading the stats on uh, Gen Z and TikTok and, Mm -hmm. Usage is through the roof. Mm-hmm. I mean, compared to Instagram or Facebook, it's two, three, four, five X. Yeah. And we're we're now starting to see generational trends when it comes to comparison. Do you think that comparison, insecurity, rejection is a bigger issue for the next generation than it was perhaps for some of us who are a bit older? Any any thoughts on that? Um, I I don't know that it's a bigger issue, but I do think that it's um, being triggered at a higher um, frequency because, for example, you know, social media gets blamed for causing insecurity all the time. But the reality is, while social media does expose insecurity, it's not the source of insecurity. I mean, insecurity predates Facebook. You know, many of us, there was somebody in the office <laughs> that made yeah. us 
made us feel less than um, before we were on Facebook. You know, there was somebody at church who maybe, you know, their Sunday school class was more well attended than ours, you know? So uh, I think it predates social media, but I think that the, the access that social media gives us to the lives of other people can absolutely expose our insecurity to a higher degree. And so to that end, I do think that this generation, this idea of identity is so important because if their identity is not secure, they are going to experience um, more and more and more triggers to their insecurity. And I see that happening a lot. I have two boys who are nine and 12. My 12-year-old, he isn't allowed on social media, but even looking at YouTube, he's decided he wants to be a YouTuber because he saw somebody who was his age who has like a couple million subscribers. And so he's he's benchmarking that person as success for him. And he never knew anything about a YouTube career before he came across it. So I think that's that's the challenge that we face. So that is a trend I've heard on uh, from people who work in tech and particularly Silicon Valley. I mean, they're not handing their kids social media accounts when they're seven or eight or giving them their own iPhone, you know, and you can afford it, et cetera, et cetera. As a parent, what's your philosophy around that? Yeah. So we just got our son, um, his own cell phone again, 12 years old. Um, my youngest son is nine. He's in the fourth grade. There are kids who have had cell phones since second grade (laughs) for him. Um, but the reason why we've been very hesitant, very reluctant is because again, identity. What I know is all of these different voices that are speaking into, you know, our children's hearts and our children's minds, they're shaping their identity. And so I want to be really careful about who I give access to my son. So there will be, you know, certain apps that he wants to access that I'm like, you don't need to access that because I can tell that his identity is not well-formed yet. Um, Some of us who thought we had a well-formed identity have come to realize that maybe we need to do a little more baking. (laughs) Um, because we've been exposed to some things that made us question our worth. And so, no, I, I probably won't get my nine-year-old a phone until he's 12 either. Um, and then we have so many, you know, parental controls on it that, frankly, my 12-year-old, he can only, like, call us. That's about it. Might as well have a flip phone, really. It's basically a dumb <laughs> <You're right>? phone. <laughs> really? Much. Yeah, it's a dumb phone. Ah, <laughs> uh, that's, that's really good to know. And it is interesting, just note to file, you know, a lot of the people who are really involved in tech. Mm-hmm. hold back with their kids. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think I think that's worthy of being uh, noted as well. Mm-hmm. What, are, what are some of the side effects or casualties of comparison and insecurity? What have they been in your life? Like when you look back now with the insight you have at this point, you're like, gosh, if I had had this insight 10 years ago, 15 years ago, yeah. I probably could have avoided this or not had this happened in my life. So what have been some of the collateral damages caused by insecurity? Two, two examples I'll give from my own life is one, I think that comparison um, as, as a young woman, it really caused me to accept some things in relationships that I shouldn't have accepted because I wanted to be in a relationship. Like I wanted to be wanted. And so, you know, seeing other friends in relationships would make me feel like, well, you know, yeah, maybe he's not, you know, calling me back or, you know, maybe he might be cheating on me, but that's okay because I'm in a relationship and I want to be in a relationship. Um, But even relational status is an insecure foundation because it's one of those things that if you secure your identity to it, you could end up like I did settling for worse than you're actually worth. 
And so that's definitely one of the areas where I found myself um, challenged from an identity standpoint. The other area I would say is I think that comparison, when it becomes insecurity, it will actually make you kind of um, scale yourself down to fit into the small box of other people's opinions of you. And so there are things that I didn't do because I knew other people wouldn't approve. Um, there are you know, things I wouldn't wear because I knew other people wouldn't approve. And so what happened is I became what other people approved of in the moment, only to later learn that they no longer approved of that thing. And so you know, fashion changes, um, opportunities change, and trying to fit into their opinion, it, it actually caused me to miss out on, on a lot of things. And so um, those are two ways that it's manifested in my life. So identity has come up a lot in this conversation so far, and it's something I think about a lot. And, you know, it's one thing, I was in law, then I was in ministry, and I'm always like, don't tie your identity to your work, right. but I've always worked. Right, right. And it has generally been an up and to the right journey over three decades. And, you know, so I play this little academic game in my head about, well, if this all disappeared tomorrow, who would I be? How would mm-hmm. I be? I don't know that you really know the answer to that question until it happens. Mm-hmm. How are you navigating that? Like, okay, so you're trying to decouple your identity from your success, but Nona, you're successful. Mm-hmm. So what, like, how do you do that? So I try my best to avoid labels. And that sounds weird because, you know, when we speak somewhere, people, they introduce us and we have biography and uh, but I try really hard to avoid labels. So I'll give you an example. Um, I'll never forget one time I went to to preach at a church and, um, you know, I, I walked into the building and I'm the kind of person, I don't travel with like, like an entourage. So it was just me. So I walked into the building, uh, didn't really know where to go. And I asked the, the woman, I said, hey, you know, um, where should the speakers go? And I guess she thought I was asking for someone else. And so she responded in a very just like dismissive way. Oh, just go down that hall down there and somebody will tell you what to do. And I was like, oh, okay. And so I went down the hall. They got me situated. Well, I, I spoke that that evening. And afterwards, she came up to me. She was like, I am so sorry. I didn't realize that you were this person. And I didn't know. And it's so funny how it landed on me. Is I was like, the fact that I'm speaking doesn't change who I am. Like, I, I'm not upset that you responded the way that you did. I mean, that's you, I guess. And she was so apologetic. Because now I had this label. And so when I go speak places, I try my best not to wear labels <laughs> because mm-hmm. then the label becomes my identity. Um, and, and part of what I even do you know, for work, I love what I do for work, but I don't like introduce myself as this is who I am and this is where I work and this is my title. <laughs> People typically will find that out, um, but it's just not how I introduce myself. Uh, because to your point, who would I be if I was no longer at this company? Who would I be if I was no longer writing books? Who would I be if I was no longer leaving this church with my husband? I would still be loved and valued by God. And I would just be a person that has a purpose that's in another direction. Um, But it's hard to land there when you're wearing a ton of labels. Yeah. So you've got a detox plan Mm -hmm. to kill comparison in your book. Can you walk us through it a little bit? Yeah, so there's there's kind of three thoughts that I typically will will share with people, um, and I think the first most important step to detox from comparison is that you have to be willing to admit that you have insecurity, and that's hard 
because we love to admit that we're very secure, that, you know, we love people. We love the Lord. We're so humble. We're just excited for other people. Yeah. But you, you know, you, you can't get free from what you don't acknowledge. And so first, just being willing to admit, you know what? I think I do have some insecurity on the inside of me. And, and the way that you even come to that realization is by figuring out what triggers those questions. Like, why was I left out? Why was I overlooked? Why them, not me? Why wasn't I invited? Mm -hmm. Like, begin to explore that and ask the question, why does it matter? Because once you ask that question, now you have to really take a step back and figure out what is it that I believe on the inside of me that is making me see this other person as a threat in some way? So first is really the recognition. And then from there, I encourage people to reframe uh, another person's success, not as your failure, but as an opportunity to, to celebrate them. Um, as an opportunity to learn, as an opportunity to grow. So when I see somebody, um, and let's just say they achieve something that I've had my heart set on, instead of being like, oh, why did they get it and I didn't? My question is, man, what can I learn from them? Like, what can I learn from their success? I, I think that's really cool that they did what they did. And so now I'm putting myself in the posture of a student and students don't usually compete with their teachers, right? <laughs> like usually... You're just learning. Um, and so reframing has been really, really helpful for me. Um, but then thirdly, as I, as I said, it's, it's celebrating their success. You know, once you learn from it, now how do I celebrate? How do I celebrate the fact that this person did something really cool? Um, maybe I send them a gift card and just say, man, so excited for you. Uh, hope that God continues to enlarge your territory. Maybe I just send them a message to encourage them. Like that was so cool. Because once you free your heart, from the need to compete, you will experience freedom from comparison. And in my book, there's like a common thread. I, I talk about the story of Jonathan because, you know, there's a lot of attention given to, you know, David, a lot of attention given to Saul in the Bible, um, but very little attention is given to Jonathan. And in reality, Jonathan is the hero of that whole story. Because if you think about it, you know, people think that David triggered Saul's insecurity and Saul was afraid that David was going to take his kingdom. David wasn't going to take Saul's kingdom. Saul was already king. David was going to take Jonathan's kingdom. <laughs> and yet, Yeah, that's a really good point. You mm -hmm. know, yet Jonathan, he wasn't threatened by David. He wasn't uh, in competition with David. The Bible even gives an example of, you know, when David and Saul came back to town after winning a battle, how, you know, Saul heard the people singing, David has killed, uh, Saul has killed his thousands and David has tens of thousands. And it was at that moment that Saul's insecurity was triggered. But in that very same scene, Jonathan goes up to David and gives David his garments, gives David his weapons. Like it, it's just a beautiful story of how to get free from toxic comparison by celebrating another person's success. So those are just three ideas I would share. No, that is really, really good. I mean, uh, it was years ago I heard Andy Stanley say, leverage what God has given you, celebrate what God has given others. And that has been so freeing. So freeing. Sometimes you have to pry that celebration out of my dead hands, but you know, not that often, not as often as you did 20 years ago, but it's so good. Anything else you want to share with insecure leaders? I mean, the, the reality is that insecurity is not, um, it's not something that you have to live with for the rest of your life. Um, it's, it's part of the human condition because I do believe that we are primed 
to compare ourselves with other people, which is why the Bible says, don't compare yourself among yourselves because we're primed to do that. Um, But the last thing I would offer is that there's really two types. There's two outcomes to comparison because all comparison isn't bad. Like honestly, when I lost my hundred pounds, it was because I was comparing myself to a woman I saw on YouTube who had lost a hundred pounds. She was my weight when she started. She lost a hundred pounds and she inspired me that it was possible because before then I couldn't imagine losing a hundred pounds. So one of the outcomes from comparison is inspiration. And that very word means to breathe air in, but the opposite is also true. Comparison can lead to expiration. And that's what happens when you exhale air out. And that's what happens when you die, your purpose dies, your identity dies. And so I would just offer to people, let's be inspired by what we see other people do um, because it gives us life and energy and hope for our future. That's great. Nona, thank you so much. The book is called Killing Comparison. It's available everywhere books are sold. And where are you hanging out on the internet these days? I am hanging at uh, Nona, not Nora on Instagram, YouTube, uh, as well as Facebook. You can find me there. And then nonajones.com backslash killing comparison um, as well. Nona, thanks again. I so appreciate you. Thanks, Carrie. Man, I never thought we'd say Brazilian butt lift on this podcast, but we did. And uh, hopefully that was helpful uh, for you as well. Uh, you can get show notes and everything about this episode over at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 519. Next episode, we've got Stephen M. R. Covey. And every once in a while, this is Stephen Covey's son, who has led the Covey Company to become the largest leadership development company in the world. Every once in a while, when you talk to a son of a famous person, they're like, yeah, I don't want to talk about my dad. Stephen M. R. Covey was so thrilled to talk about his dad. So we talk about that. Tips for leaders who are growing up in the public eye, how to scale an organization beyond the founder, and why command and control leadership is dead, and how to build a high-trust organization. Here's an excerpt. And so that's integrity, that your reality is, you know, you are who you say you are. You you do your best to walk the talk. At my father's funeral, here's what I shared about him that is maybe the kindest thing I could say, but also the most accurate thing. And it's simply this, Carrie, that as good as my father was in public, mm. as an author and as a teacher, and he was very, very good, as good as he was in public, he was even better in private. As a husband to my mother, as a father to us kids. That's next time on the podcast. Also coming up, Dion Nicholas on AI. Sint Marshall, the CEO of the Dallas Mavericks. My goodness, was that a fun conversation. Tim Tebow, Joey and Christy Spears, Brian Koppelman, the producer of Billions, Chris Anderson of TED Talks, Rich Birch, Patrick Lencioni, and James Clear, and so much more. So excited for what we got planned for you. And again, for those of you who are leaving ratings and reviews, thank you. You're making a huge difference. More and more people listen to this podcast every month, and that is in large measure because of you. And if this is helping you, please leave us a rating and review or just copy the show, hit share, and send it, text it to a friend. So if you like this episode, uh, I want to give you something to help you kickstart your marketing today. 
If you spent time learning how to market your organization, you know there's an overwhelming number of strategies. So how do you know what's right for you? Well, I've got an exclusive three-part series where I sit down with a senior executive at Chick-fil-A to reveal some of the secrets behind their marketing success and how you can apply these principles to your organization. They grew from a $13 billion to $17 billion company during the pandemic. You want more on that? You can get it today at churchmarketingsecrets.com. That's churchmarketingsecrets.com. That's my gift to you. And thank you for everyone who participated in that. We want to serve you and we are so glad we have the opportunity to do it. We're back next time with a fresh episode and I hope our time together today has helped you thrive in life and leadership.